Hello, my name is Rachel Barber, co-PI on the project and a junior at Stanford University. This is Infodemic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. Infodemic was a virtual conference that took place on August 26, 2021, in which leaders in public health, medicine, ethics, and social media discussed ways to mitigate the COVID-19 misinformation and disinformation epidemic. This single season podcast will feature all of the infodemic sessions as single episodes. The following is one of the conference presentations entitled Achieving COVID-19 Vaccine Equity. The panelists were Danielle Pascia, an ethicist at the Hastings Center, Lisa Menning, Teen Lead for Demand and Behavioral Sciences, Department of Immunization and World Health Organization, and Tom Boyke from the Council on Foreign Relations. The panel moderator is William Hasseltine. Enjoy. All right. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Neil Hazeltine. I'm a uh, scientist, been a businessman in the for-profit and not-for-profit worlds, currently the uh, chair and president of Access Health International. Tom, why don't you begin and then we'll go around the circle. Great. I'm Tom Boyke. I direct the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. I also teach at Georgetown, and it's my great pleasure to be here with this group. Next uh, up is Daniela. Hi, it is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me and hosting this wonderful conference. My name is Danielle Pasha. I'm currently research staff at the Hastings Center, a bioethics think tank, where I work on several different projects, but one that's particular salient for this conference is one that is exploring community health centers in the United States and how they are dealing with access and attitudes for COVID vaccines. Lisa? Hi, everyone. And it's also an absolute pleasure to join you all for these discussions. So I'm with WHO in Geneva at headquarters, and I lead our work on vaccine acceptance and uptake which concerns looking at all the behavioural and social drivers that contribute to confidence and coverage of vaccines around the world. Thank you very much. And uh, all of our expertise is a bit tangential to the actual talk, which is uh, global equity. Uh, It's a concern for all of us. It's very clear that everyone in the world is pretty much in the same boat uh, when it comes to the issues of what the virus, SARS-CoV-2, is, uh, can do. Some countries have responded, we put it this way, countries have responded very, very differently. But one of the most salient questions today is on uh, vaccine equity. We've heard talks and discussion of equity within countries. Now we're focusing on equity between countries. And what are some of the issues? I will serve as a moderator. I may make some comments as we go along. But I'd like to, the bulk of the discussion to be carried by you three. And let's start in uh, reverse order because WHO has taken a pretty uh, definite position on the issues, issues related to the vaccine availability. And in particular, in recent days, the recommendation in some countries and practice in some countries to make third boosters available to some some or all of their citizens. So, uh, Lisa, why don't you begin with that? Yeah, thank you so much, Bill, for for kicking it off and and the question. So... To start with, just to say that we know that a global approach to vaccination is morally the right thing to do, and it's scientifically right as well. And we know that in places where there's going to be uncontrollable virus spread, the virus will have opportunities to generate more diversity and trigger the evolution of viruses that are much worse, more contagious, more transmissible, more virulent than we have already today. So we need a global approach 
to be able to ensure an equitable distribution of vaccines around the world. And so far, globally, we know that there's been about 4.8 billion COVID vaccine doses that have been delivered worldwide to date. But the challenge is that only about 75% of those vaccines have gone to 10 countries. Those are the 10 generally most high income, the wealthiest countries around the world. And for example, the converse of that is that in Africa, for example, we have less than 2% of the continent's population that have received even the first dose, less than 2%. So we have a grotesque inequity in the distribution of vaccines around the world, and that is in no one's interest when it comes to stopping this pandemic. So I'll leave it there and hear from other panellists for their thoughts on the matter, and there'll be much more to explore on this as we go, I'm sure. Uh, Daniela, you want to uh, pick it up from there? Yeah, I think all of those thoughts are well heard. I think they were beautifully encapsulated. I think something I would add is, you know, now that the Biden administration is really supporting the use boosters in the United States, I think it just underscores this idea of complete inequity on a global scale of people in the United States getting these booster shots so they don't have as bad of a reaction to COVID-19 infection, while there are literally health providers in several countries that don't have their first dose. And secondly, I want to mention the TRIPS waiver discussions and just how the United States and other countries can help build capacity to make sure that other countries can start making their own vaccines, distributing their own vaccines, and really building that infrastructure up so it's sustainable change, God forbid, if another pandemic happens. So this global inequity is happening, I think, on two levels. One, just the rote distribution of vaccines has been completely inequitable but also knowledge sharing, infrastructure sharing has also been quite inequitable as we've seen. Thank you for the good question and thank you for the good discussion so far. So Isaac Asimov has a great quote that uh, science gathers knowledge faster than society gathers wisdom. And I'm afraid that's very much what we've seen with regard to the global vaccination. It's been remarkable how quickly they were developed in under a year, which, you know, the previous record had been four years to develop a novel vaccine from sequence. It's remarkable how many doses we've produced and administered. So by today's numbers, it's actually we just surpassed 5 billion globally. And a lot of people considered 5 billion in a year a stretch goal heading into once we had the approvals or authorization rather of these vaccines. It's remarkable that we've been able to do that. But, you know, the speakers have been right. Three out of every four of those doses have gone to just 10 countries, and that's problematic. It's problematic for a couple of reasons. Well, the first is that ultimately the purpose of these vaccines should be preventing unnecessary harm and most notably death. And where these vaccines have gone have not been the countries at the greatest risk. It's, you know, on one hand, not surprising that high income countries have used more than their share considering they also account for 3% of the cases. But you've had vaccines not going to places that have had high burdens of cases and are considered high risk of surges moving forward, and notably Southern Africa, non-EU, Eastern European and Central European states, Middle East and North Africa, and parts of Latin and Central America, not only have suffered high numbers of cases and been under-vaccinated, they are 
forecast to continue to do. So that's been a real challenge. But in terms of moving forward with what we want to see, the previous speaker mentioned, you know, the next pandemic. The second problem that we see from this is this lack of equity in how this has proceeded undermines the amount of the international cooperation we need to see to make progress in the later stages of this pandemic. So it's bad in terms of what we've been able to do in terms of getting the public health benefit of all that science has wrought here. Thank you all for that. I think you've done a, a great job of outlining the current situation. Let's dig a little deeper and I'll go in the same order to discuss why this has happened. What are the underlying causes for this? We'll then go on to discuss some things we could may do to change some of those underlying causes. But first, what we can do in the meantime. But your thoughts on why you think this has happened. Yeah, thank you. And it, it's great to really take a closer look at some of these underlying factors. And I think that at a global level, we've seen the problem that high income countries have ordered high volumes of doses and volumes that, that go far beyond the needs of their population. They've essentially over-ordered doses of multiple vaccine options. They've also essentially hoarded them, restricted exports, and not adequately shared them with other countries. And Danielle referred to, to TRIPS. And we've seen also some high-income countries, not all, but some high-income countries oppose certain calls for these IP rights to be temporarily waived. There's, at many levels, been inadequate sharing of the vaccines and the IP that goes behind them. The mix of these different factors has led to this situation. I have to recognise that there have been some wealthier countries that have contributed to sharing or donating the doses that they have, contributed to allocating those doses to lower-income countries, but proportionally that has been inadequate up until this point in time. So there have been some areas of progress here, but still not enough to really make a difference in this overall picture. Yeah, I mean, I think in short, it's a bit of nationalism. I think it's hard for us to have compassion. I think there's a lot of psychological blocks for having compassion for people in outside countries that aren't our own, especially in wealthier countries where I think a lot of people in the United States and other wealthier countries have been conditioned to put their country first. I mean, this was a huge slogan in the past presidency in the United States for people to constantly say America first. And so for people to, you know, have that immediate switch uh, during a pandemic, I think is kind of a really intense psychological barrier to ensuring equitable vaccine access globally. Let me prove that a little bit more. The four countries or the four areas that can produce vaccines in very large are the United States, the UK, and some parts of Europe, India, and China. Those could all contribute equally to the distribution. So it's not just a problem in the United States. There's some other dynamic going on there. Do you have thoughts about that? Yeah, and I guess I just mentioned the United States as a case study, as I am a citizen of the United States, but I do think it is a problem throughout all of those countries you mentioned this idea of nationalism, when, as has been mentioned throughout this conference, this virus doesn't carry a passport or anything like that. It serves in our best interest to make sure these vaccines are donated equitably on an international scale. But truly, I, I use the United States as a case study because I do think that it's a recurring problem across nation states. Tom, I know you've thought about this issue, but, you know, there's 
another side to the issue. One of it is, of course, the distribution and that it's a problem of many countries. But on the other hand, at, the, at least at the beginning, it seemed like there's almost going to be a diplomatic war on the topic of who could give more vaccines. Could the Chinese be advancing their political purposes by providing countries with vaccines? And shouldn't the U.S. catch up? Shouldn't Europe catch up? It was actually an unusual situation. So I'd like you to address both issues. First, what you think the cause might for this. And second of all, what's happened to the uh, diplomatic war for giving away the most vaccines? Good questions and good discussion. So on the cause side, I, I think people need to acknowledge that in nearly every other global health crisis in which there's been scarce supplies of a medical intervention that would make a difference, wealthy nations have hoarded it. It is not a surprise that we've had hoarding in this case. In fact, the opposite, if we had managed to overcome those impulses, would have been more of a surprise. And I don't think we had the systems set up that were capable of doing it in two regards. I think it's remarkable what occurred with COVAX. To build it on the fly at the same time that you are trying to reverse what is a historical trend. You know, at this point, I think it's roughly 230 million doses COVAX has delivered so far. We're still a year since authorization. That is faster, certainly, than what we saw with antiretroviral drugs around HIV, faster than what we've seen in other instances with novel drugs. Where I think COVAX had bet on was that it had a larger portfolio of vaccines, and therefore wealthy countries would rely on it as a hedge that they would be left out of the vaccine race by betting on the wrong horse. But what happened instead was wealthy countries bought a portfolio of vaccines, which not only locked up capacity, but starved COVAX of resources it needed to be able to lock up those supplies. So this gets to the two challenges COVAX wasn't able to overcome. One was money. My good friend and colleague, Nikki Lurie, likes to say that you can't pass around a tin cup in a crisis. COVAX was very much in that situation of being starved with resources when they might have made a difference. The second is that, you know, countries hoarded. That's not a surprise. They hoarded earlier in the pandemic. They hoarded PPP, PPE, rather, masks and protective equipment, other essential medical supplies. So therefore, we couldn't get doses out of countries. That's not just a U.S. or European phenomenon. It's occurred with India and a host of other countries. With PPE and essential medical supplies, 80 nations hoarded them in the early stages of the pandemic. COVAX never had an answer to how we would stop countries from hoarding. And I think that was the other area went went wrong. So let me uh, explore that word hoarding. My memory might be a little different, but my memory is there seems to be an acute shortage for quite a long time of PPE. And to say that the United States hoarded, hoarding means you keep it but don't use it. There might be a better word than hoarding to describe a situation in which people acquire a limited resource preferentially. Yeah. And that is also certainly true at the beginning of the vaccine. It isn't so much they hoarded it and they kept it and didn't use it. That may be a fair description of some of the things that are happening right now. But I think a lot of the issues, and maybe let's discuss it, is limited supply. And how much is the limit in the actual supply contributed to the inequities? And is that going to change over time? So it's a fair point. On the hoarding side, I would say a couple of things there. We're, what I'm referring to are largely formal and informal export restrictions. And those were applied against governments who had purchased 
those supplies. So those were not supplies acquired by wealthy countries per se. Those were supplies being produced within their borders and then were not able to leave. And I consider that different than the phenomenon of buying something up and then using it for yourself and not sharing it. And when I refer to the 80 countries, it's 80 countries who did that. Earlier and in this even, I might point out that if you look at India, there were some states, for example, that refu- where there were limited manufacturers of amphotericin to treat uh, black fungal disease, and they forbid that drug to leave their state, right. even within the country. So people in other parts of India couldn't get the drug that was in short supply. If you have every country, assuming every other country is going to ha- behave like a nationalist, they're going to behave like a nationalist, too. The only way to overcome that is reciprocity and dependence. And unfortunately, we have countries wanting to move in the other direction, which is to be able to produce everything themselves instead of cooperating. And that is going to leave countries out that are a long way away from being in the position to be able to make vaccines for vaccine relief. Okay, Danielle, your comment on this? What, to what extent is limitation in total supply responsible for the perceived inequities? It's a great question. Bioethicists often joke that we would be out of our jobs if there was no resource scarcity because it just completely confounds the process of just and fair distribution, right? Suddenly it gets really kind of difficult to divvy up things. And in what ways is it correct to divvy up these materials that everybody desperately needs? And I think that's hard enough on a domestic scale, but then when you size it up to an international scale, just as the past panelists pointed out, I mean, nationalism is a huge, huge, huge issue. You know, people want to feel like they have a responsibility for the citizens that elected them, the citizens that are part of the same nation state as them. And that's always going to be very difficult in a resource-scarce situation, especially when only a few countries hold the materials, the knowledge, and the tools to actually make these vaccines and then They play a huge hand in ensuring that these materials are distributed equitably on a national scale. Always just going to be so, so difficult with resource scarcity. All right. Lisa, you're okay. Absolutely. There are not enough vaccines. And the thing is, there's been some evolution of the variants that have played a contributing factor here, as well as the available vaccines. So, rewind back to a time when AstraZeneca was starting to be used. And then we had this emergence of these very rare but severe side effects of this blood clotting disorder associated with the AstraZeneca vaccine. So there were countries globally and COVAX was relying heavily on AstraZeneca vaccines um, manufactured in India. And we then hit a situation where the science on those vaccines evolved and many of the regulatory groups around the world essentially recommended that those vaccines would only be used in adults over the age of 60 as they were weighing up the risks and benefits of those vaccines. Also considering that COVID is much more severe for those older population groups, they're much greater at risk. So there was a situation where there was a great dependency on AstraZeneca vaccines for low middle income countries. And the ability to use those vaccines in the younger population groups, particularly also for health workers who were the frontline workers who were prioritised for vaccines to begin with, that became problematic. So the science around AstraZeneca vaccines was an initial problem. Next, we had the Delta variant. 
and also the Delta variant taking off in Asia and India in particular. So India was and and is the major manufacturer serum institute for these AstraZeneca vaccines. And they closed the export of those vaccines. And India, enormous population, 1 billion people. And ever since, you know, February, March this year, they're no longer exporting these necessary vaccines, right? And this then has put COVAX in an incredibly difficult position and has now been relying on all of these other manufacturers. And the last factor to consider here really is Delta. And what this is doing now is that there is uh, data showing that the available vaccines are slightly less efficacious against the Delta variant. And this is now, you know, coming back to your original question, Bill, about the boosters. So because of this lower efficacy of uh, the vaccines against the Delta variant and also this consideration of these vaccines, the efficaciousness of the vaccines waning over over time, this is now leading countries to consider the booster doses, right? And we're just really not at all in a position yet for that to be considered. The bottom line with the boosters as well is that there's no conclusive evidence that efficacy is really going to change over time. So this all means that, you know, we we have a different kind of pressure on available vaccines and WHO has said that essentially there should be a moratorium against use of these boosters before the end of September whilst we, you know, continue to increase the level of coverage and availability of supply in these low-income settings in particular. Let me make a couple of comments here. First of all, I think, at least at the very beginning, there were two arguments you pointed. One is just an ethical argument. Everybody is equal in the world and we should have equal access. Second argument is if you don't do that, you and your rich countries are going to suffer because the viruses that they create there are going to get you over here. And so it's in your interest to make sure that everybody, those are two very strong arguments. I want to take the conversation and maybe a left turn here. Our vaccine is the answer. And it looks like this is, I'm a virologist. I've looked at this from the very beginning and always recognize the weakness of vaccines. This is going to be like, in my view, and I wrote about that. There is no such thing as herd immunity. It's a fantasy. It was a lethal fantasy for a while. And it still is in some countries. Vaccines aren't going to solve the problem entirely any more than they solve. You'll need a multi-layered approach. Take a country of 1.4 billion people that has a thousand times less infection rate than the United States. That exists. Are we really barking up the wrong tree when we focus on vaccines rather than social control of this disease? Because that's what's worked. Vaccines, we now know, as resistance, their limited supplies. There would be seemingly no limit to the ability of a government to help its people. There are limits, of course, because we see that in the U.S. But is it really the right question that we're asking? Or should we be putting our effort toward contact tracing, isolation, identification, contract tracing, isolation? Is that where we should go? Because that is what proved to be most effective. Interesting question. Let's take it from you, Tom, and go around the circle again. Great. I'll say a couple of things. One, I think you're right that for people that have been watching this pandemic, and if the only lesson we have learned for future pandemics is we need a vaccine sooner, we haven't been paying attention. And there's no question that we do need a layered approach. I'm sure other entities are putting out strategies like this too, but USAID has in fact put out a strategy advocating for a layered approach to how it addresses the global challenges as well. That said, I think we also need to ask your question of Thailand or Vietnam or a number of countries that had done a very good job holding back the original 
virus, but have not been able to quite do so under the current circumstances. And I'd be nervous if I were a country that hasn't seen a lot of infection. You know, I think it's a matter of time, ultimately, that you'll see this virus continue to spread. We do need vaccination. I agree with you that herd immunity is a fantasy in this instance, certainly how people have used it, but it is a incredibly effective tool at reducing severe health outcomes from this virus. And that is a tool that should be made available because the countries that have just relied on the non-pharmaceutical interventions, many of them have not managed to do so successfully. Not all of them, but many of them. And that's particularly true in low-income countries. And again, the examples I would point out are Thailand and Vietnam, but there's certainly yes. others. Danielle? Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting question. And it just kind of reminds me of how messaging around COVID-19 could have been much clearer at the beginning. Like, I think it was quite obvious or it was very probable that COVID-19 was going to become more of a flu-like thing rather than a blip in history. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. But I do think that Vaccines are important, especially for particularly, you know, vulnerable groups of people. It's a really great way to lessen the amount of illness. And, you know, God forbid, uh, rates are going up in the United States and in other countries with the Delta variant and health systems just really, they can't actually take on these many patients. It's clear we need a multi-layered approach. Everybody mm -hmm. thinks we have published papers on something called multimodal COVID control, which is a four-layered process, which includes globalization, by the way. But in the, in the WHO messaging, it has not so much taken the Chinese example as the shining example of what humans can do to control an pandemic, even before you have a vaccine. And the question is, is there some more emphasis that, that might happen for the long run? Because the next epidemic is coming along. We may not have a vaccine so quickly. We may not have drugs so quickly. I created Access International with a fundamental understanding that we had solutions which nobody was using and that people around the world don't have access because of the institutional structure. And what we've seen through this is a fundamental failing in most countries, deep and fundamental, the way it's organized, the way it's executed. Yep. And that has been a greater failure, in my view, than the failure to distribute the vaccines. And Tom's point is well taken. You need a multi-layered approach. But one of the fundamental approaches, and I wonder what WHO position on that is or how, how what's the thinking of WHO about that? So firstly, just to say, we're not going to be able to do it all with vaccines. We do need this multi-layered approach. We need to be testing, tracing. We need people to be wearing masks, distancing, hand washing, all of these public health and social measures at multiple levels. This is how we will start to end this pandemic. So all of these things need to take place together. The next question is, what does it take to put all of this in place and to do it in a way where we're thinking about a scenario where there could be another virus, there, there could be the next variant of COVID? And how do we do this in a way where we really are set up for the future in a sustainable way? And WHO for a long time has been encouraging this. We've been putting various kinds of warnings out there about Disease X, for example, and working to prepare countries to say, here are the pandemic preparedness systems you need to have in place because this is inevitable. We, we know from history this will happen sooner or later. It will continue to happen. And I think that it, it comes back to parts of the discussion earlier on that, you know, when we were talking about um, reasons why there's been unequal distribution of, of vaccines around the world, there's politics. There's the financial and economic interests 
there's a societal interest and there's complacency. And all these things in various ways get tangled together for people to look out for their own interest, to think about the short term. And this is how we don't learn from science and from history about what needs to happen. We have a lot of uh, very rich things we've touched on, but let me bring up another couple. People have mentioned trips. There's another uh, related to what you've just talked about. Not only are health systems around the world inadequate, even if you had the vaccine, to use them, and there's great examples. Vaccines arrived and virtually nobody got them. So that's a health system structure. But there's another warning that has been going on for the last I've been involved in and other people have. It's sort of like a relay race. You get tired, (laughs) hand off the baton to someone else. Uh, But it is the warning that this is going to happen. And when I look around the world, I see tremendous deficits in vaccine manufacturing capacity. They're all continents. They can't even supply one country with a vaccine. And I refer to the continent of Africa and South America. They're completely deficient. It isn't that they don't have the money. It isn't they don't have the resources. They've never had the will to create that infrastructure. It isn't so hard to build a vaccine manufacturing facility. It's not that expensive, actually. If you can build a superhighway, if you can build a high-rise building, you can surely build a manufacturing facility for vaccines. So the question is, can we take this problem we've got now which is not just a question of rich countries giving away their vaccines. It's a question of who can make their own vaccines. What I'm seeing now is a lot of other countries beginning to build manufacturing capacity. I've been working with international banks to try to get them to lend the money so you can build the capacity. But one of the fundamental problems is not only are health systems intrinsically inequitable in many parts of the world, but they're not organized and we don't have the manufacturing capacity. Is there a way that we can see from getting where we are now to where for this and the next epidemic, and this is going to be going on, where we can see manufacturing facilities being built all over the world? And that's not exactly the TRIPS question, but it's pretty close close to it. And Tom, you want to take that? Sure. The short answer is I don't know. I think we will certainly try. And I think there's a lot of reason to have regional vaccine manufacturing hubs. I don't know if we're going to move to every country in the world or if that's necessary, but I can certainly see the case for regional hubs. I think the challenges you're going to have there are a couple full. So there's the question, of course, of the business model and what they're going to do in non-pandemic times. There's the question of the supporting supply chain they need to have them, because one of the things that has become quite clear in this pandemic, given the delays have often not been vaccine manufacturing. They've been the supply of the inputs you need to make vaccine manufacturing, including the people. So how are you going to sustain those regionally? So all of that is a very worthwhile agenda because Danielle is right. Anyone who's been paying attention to this pandemic, the countries that have gotten vaccines are the same ones making them by and large. Absolutely. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to draw those two lines to one another. I don't think for this particular pandemic that technology transfer, whether it happens through a trip waiver or other means, is going to be the solution because I don't think there's enough time. If we are, the G7 talked about vaccinating 70% of the world by the end of 2022. That's far too late. We really need to be thinking March 2022, June 2022 in order to really make the headway we can. And to do that, we actually need to ramp up production in the places that have that production currently, and we need to invest in that to happen. It's frustrating that we're having that conversation because, frankly, we could have done that a long time ago, but we didn't. Uh, We also need to invest in all the infrastructure needed to actually allocate 
distribute and administer doses once they have them. Absolutely. It's also frustrating that we are having that conversation now because that is a non-competitive investment to wealthy countries' domestic vaccination. You could do it at the same time. It wouldn't hinder at all what is happening within wealthy countries domestically, and yet is largely not happened to the degree that it needs to. You know, Tom, one thing that I've noticed on that last question is, is I'm sure you have done the same as I have gone to very, very rural places. It may take you hours to get them by unusual forms of transportation. Once you get there, you find a small facility with a freezer full of vaccines and a very good registry for children's vaccines, right? Not for adult vaccines, but for children's vaccines. That network is almost as ubiquitous as Coca-Cola and Pepsi distribution. It's really remarkable what's happened in the world for those vaccines. The question is is also, it isn't that the capacity isn't actually there. It is there. It's just not used that way. And I think that's a, that's kind of a question maybe for WHO to take. Why aren't the distribution channels being used, basically the same ones, which I find to be very effective in almost all countries. And I've been way out of the way places. Yeah, and I, I've been to some of those places too, Bill, in, in Asia and Africa, and it's incredible. Yeah. yeah, and the passion and energy and commitment of these vaccinators in incredibly difficult circumstances is really humbling, and I'm really privileged to have had those opportunities. So what to say, though, is that within countries, and particularly for, for COVID vaccines, we've had to reach new target populations. We've had to reach older adults, adults, frontline workers. And that's been the challenge that they're not connected to immunization systems, to health systems even. The reach is just not there and they don't have recent experiences of getting vaccinated. And so there's been a number of access and delivery related considerations that have been in various ways problematic. And I think that countries where vaccines have been available have done a remarkable job in ensuring that those vaccines have been used. And it's true as, you know, in the earlier session, we had some discussion about hesitancy. Yes, there have been instances where people have had questions or concerns or decided to delay a little bit, but where the information, the conversations, the engagement, all that interaction with the communities has evolved and, and responded, all of those barriers have been overcome. And, you know, at the end of the day, hesitancy is no longer the problem here where vaccines are available. It's getting those delivery strategies right, the setup of those services and the reach to all of these populations, wherever they're located, and these different adult groups that are not traditionally reached. So that has been a learning curve for programs, but I think that they've really overcome that challenge so far. I think it's a good point that, you know, a lot of these nations could potentially create these vaccine manufacturing facilities, and they probably should have a long time ago. But there's always going to be an agenda and everybody wants not to be preventative. They would rather things that would benefit the country right then and there. So I just say all of this to say, like, hopefully after the COVID-19 pandemic, that's a lesson that can be moved forward in a lot of these nations that don't have proper vaccine manufacturing facilities. And hopefully, again, there can be knowledge sharing to help them do that as well. Right. And I would say uh, I was talking to the people in the Philippines and they dismantled their vaccine capacity. Uh, in the ni late 90s, which uh, they regret right at the moment. Uh, let's use our last few minutes to get some ideas about what we could do that's positive. What can we do to overcome this? What would uh, you like to see, Tom? I think what we need to do is set in 
more ambitious target and establish who's responsible and accountable for meeting it amongst the countries and institutions that have the ability to do so and work backwards. Right now, there's not a lot of that responsibility and accountability going. What do you mean by it? I can understand by saying who's responsible, but where does accountability come from? Well, once people declare they're responsible for doing it, that in itself is source of accountability for actually achieving it in terms of a public announcement. But right now, you know, we're getting slow promises of donations that only a couple of countries have actually delivered on and most recently. And that's that's really hurting us. But ultimately, this needs to be mapped out in the same way that it was mapped out domestically. We have an idea of how to build capacity and supply in a crisis. We've done it. The U.S. and the U.K., other countries have as well, using policy support and financing and logisticians to try to work out the process of moving this forward. We have not deployed any of that globally, and we need to do that with a more rigorous target. That is the only way this is going to happen. Okay, Danielle, your final remarks on this. Yeah, thank you. I'll just say really quickly, I think there needs to be a better effort, messaging on a more granular and individual level in these countries where vaccines are being ported, for lack of a better term right now. I think a lot of times people look at vaccines in a really autonomy focused way, like I'm getting this vaccine because it helps me when in fact, when you get a vaccine, it actually helps on a much larger scale. I think once people maybe understand that there can be more motion and more efforts to actually ensure that there's equitable distribution across the globe. Um, I truly think that's something that the average person doesn't quite understand yet. And it's largely because of sort of like the seatbelt metaphor that was used frequently during the beginning of the pandemic. It's not a seatbelt. It helps communities. It's more like drunk driving regulations. Precisely. Okay, Lisa. I would say two things. The first is no boosters. No use of boosters until, you know, until there's better evidence and at least for the next couple of months until we have greater coverage in low middle income settings. The second thing I would say is greater transparency, greater transparency around the availability of supply, the allocation and distribution and the pricing of those vaccines and and the related deals. So I think there's much greater transparency needed globally between countries and manufacturers. Well, I want to thank you all. You've been a great panel. It's been fun to speak with you. I would say if I were to chip in my two bits on this, it would be everybody who can should ramp up manufacturing capacity to the max so we don't have the ethical dilemmas that we have and we don't have the understandable national trends that currently exist. But I want to again thank you. I want to thank Stanford for the opportunity. And you've all been a great panel. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this session of Infodemic, a Stanford conference on social media and COVID-19 misinformation. We invite you to listen to the other important discussions and presentations that occurred at the conference, each available as individual episodes of this podcast. All 10 sessions are archived together. Just search Infodemic on the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, aliem.com, or through summer 2022 on our website, stanfordinfodemic.org. A video recording of the entire conference is available on the Stanford Department of Emergency Medicine YouTube channel. Thank you again for joining us.